This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. From Nashville, Tennessee, welcome to Music City 911. I'm Rick Beasley, communications officer retired with 40 years of experience. And I'm Brandon Hall with 20 and still going. I'd like to thank all our listeners out there. And uh, on that note, uh, before we get started up today, uh, Bees, I, I think you got a few stats on uh, our, our subscriber base uh, this week, don't you? I do. And as you know, Brandon, our vast staff gives us demographics on our listener base from time to time. And being that this podcast marks our one-month anniversary, we thought we'd share some things with you. First, we have listeners from around the world. Our number one market, obviously, is Nashville, Tennessee, from where we're based. Our number two market is Atlanta, Georgia, followed by other American cities. Now, taking a wider view, our biggest listener base is North America followed by our mates who listen to us upside down in the beautiful lands down under. So for all of you there, good day, mates. Next is Europe, and of recent, we've picked up some caras, or friends, in the lush greens of old Ireland. So in summation, our numbers continue to increase around the world, and thus the sun never sets on the voices of Brandon Hall and Rick Beasley. Now, there's a scary thought for all of you. <laughs> That's definitely scary. But back to something a little bit more serious on that, uh, what you're talking about, Bees. Uh, down in Australia, we wanted to uh, give some thoughts out to everyone down there, the, the firefighters, the policemen, and especially the dispatchers that are having to deal with uh, what they're going through right now. It's, it seems like it's absolute hell down there. And uh, I, I couldn't imagine that we have... In uh, Tennessee, we have small brush fires, and every once in a while, a, a forest fire east of here, you know, up in the mountains, but nothing anywhere close to the scale of what you guys have got going on now. The thing that was most vivid to me to try to wrap my head around was the amount of wildlife that's been lost. Half of a billion. I mean, you're talking about 200 more million than the population of the United States in people. And, and again, I, I can't even wrap my head around something like that. It's, a, it's an awful situation. I know that you said earlier uh, before we went on air that that's a normal event down there. As, yeah, it's as a seasonal as thing as far as the fires, yeah, from what I've heard. But this is a scale unprecedented from what they've had before. And, and our hearts definitely go out to everyone down there. 
And to continue on our listener base that we have, I wanted to remind and ask everyone, if you could, to come on and check out our Facebook page and our Twitter page we have now. Um, That's a good way for us to be able to put out the info on the the episodes, have a little chat back and forth with everybody, and it really helps out the show. So if you can, be sure to give us a like on Facebook and, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter and retweet and share any of our posts, anything that we have. That all just helps the show grow more and more. And since this is our one-month anniversary, we have our first guest of Music City 911 donning our studio. Brandon, you're the host. Do the honors. Uh, tonight, we'd like to welcome uh, one of our co-workers. She's been there the entire time I've been there, and even further back past then, worked with both of us for a long, long time, Miss Judy Langston. So, Judy, welcome to the show tonight, and uh, can you kind of introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career up there at 911 with us? I'm Judy Langston, and I started working at communications about 34 years ago now. I started out as a police call taker. Shortly after that, became a police-only dispatcher. Eventually, I moved on into training. After training for a while, we started consolidating and now, of course, I've joined police and fire together. Uh, most of that time, I have been a supervisor. And I've found this career to be very rewarding, very stressful, but I would not trade it for anything in the world. That's the same way that, uh, that we felt about it, you know, and, and I still feel about it. It's, it's an incredible job. Um, I love going in every day um, to experience new things literally every single day. Now, Judy, with... Uh, with your experience that you've had, it's, it's actually longer than mine. You've been up there nearly twice as, as long as I have. When I started up there, you were still a, I think you were a trainer when I first started up there. It That's was, right. um, but you were still on the floor with us. You weren't in the supervisor role at that point. So, you know, we hung out just like everybody else does on the floor. It, there's, and I'm sure all the other dispatchers that are out there listening right now, you kind of have that kind of a, I don't want to say a separation, but there is a little bit of separation between the, the floor level employees and the supervisors because there's there's always a little bit of a I don't know a little bit of content I guess or some something like that in the in the air between the the supervisors and the, the floor employees but we started out as as pretty much equals so when I started there so went out and had her beers and had some fun along with it and you know just like everybody did and you know that's one of the most rewarding parts of this job it's going to have to be the relationships that we build with each other you know, even if somebody's having a bad day, if something big happens, we all jump in just like clockwork. And that's something I've actually mentioned before in, in the show, how it doesn't matter what level you are. If we have some big incident, everybody's on the floor working it. It's from the the lowliest, newest trainee all the way up to the director sometimes and everybody in between. It, it just it happens that way. It does because we're all family and we're all there for one purpose. But, you know, I've also learned that if one of us hurts, we all hurt. It doesn't matter if you hang out after work or if you really get along. If there's something going on in your life, we're all going to be there. We're going to be behind you all the way. And that's really important. Yeah, we've we've had you know, talks between us. I mean, me and Beasley and you back on BD Tail, second shift uh, for us, uh, second shift's BD Tail, standing out in the parking lot after we get off at 11 o'clock at night. And not leaving the parking lot till one thirty, two o'clock in the morning from just standing out there 
talking bullshit and whatever like that and just going off having laughs. I mean, I, I'm sure that we were keeping our neighbors up like crazy uh, with some of the laughter we, we had out there in the middle of the night like that. But it was really needed, and we needed to vent, and we knew we could vent to each other. And that's such an important thing. It really is. When you went into supervision, I couldn't tell that there was a big change in you from going from the floor to supervision. Yeah, I couldn't either. I've always felt that you're one of us, even though you're in supervision. When you went to that level, was it a was it a big transition for you? Well, first of all, thank you. That is a huge compliment. Um, I do try to pride myself to remember where I came from. And just because I have a different title, I don't feel like I'm any different than anybody else. We're there to do a job. I can't do the job without you. And I feel like if I can help you every day, then that's what I'm there for. That's it's just what my job is. That should be the best way to look at it, too. And, you know, some of the newer supervisors, just because I like to mess with people and everything like that, uh, a couple of the newer ones we've had in the past couple of years, I'll kind of pull them aside right before their their first shift as a supervisor and or a, as they're moving up, and I'll say, don't drink that water. Don't drink it. <laughs> Remain who you are. You know, keep true to it, and you have. So well, that's one of the biggest things. And I appreciate that. Uh, probably one of the highest compliments I think that you can pay a supervisor being the supervisor at 911 is a really tough job and it is a very fine line that you walk because you care about the people on the floor and you want to do what's best for them but then you have certain goals and you have certain rules and policies that you have to ensure that they're followed but maybe one of the biggest things is just remember where you came from and talk to people the same way that you want to be talked to. Um, if you have bad experiences in the past, remember those so that you don't turn into that. Uh, I think the key to it, too, is knowing where there is a personal friendship and where there is business. You know, you've you've been my line supervisor, and, and I knew that when that relationship existed on that level, that there was certain things that you saw had to be done. And as long as we did that, there wasn't an issue. And if we didn't do that, there was an issue, but I never took it personally because that's what you were there to do. And those were two separate relationships that we had those of supervisor and subordinate, and I use that word loosely because I didn't, I never felt like a subordinate with you. And then there's the outside work relationship that we have. And I really don't see a, a difference in you between the two, except you have a job to do and I have a job to do, and your job is to see that it gets done. But what you're saying, I think, is huge. So it's not just about one person here. It's about a two-way street. So as a friend, you have to be a friend that realizes that I still have a job to do. And so if there is an issue and I come to you, if you can see it that way, it makes everything go a whole lot smoother. 
I think it makes a big difference also if you understand that if you make a mistake, how I talk to you is going to make all the difference in the world. And the same with me, I have to feel like I can come and talk to you, like our friendship wasn't just left at the door, but now I have taken on another role. And it's beneficial to both of us, where if one of us didn't feel that way, I think it would go a total different route. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I was going to kind of chime in with is just that separation of uh, work and, and friendship. I can separate that. Both you know, and anybody else out there that knows me knows that I will argue with somebody until their feet fall off. Yep. I mean, that's <laughs> sure do. Yep. Yeah. And you know, uh, and uh, that's just the way I am. And me and Judy have have argued back and forth on stuff work related, and it was just like that. I mean, it, sometimes I had to have other people come in the office with us, I believe. So, um, but that didn't change anything. Still friends. It's it's business. That's all it is. And. You have to separate that, and I'm sure everybody out there that's listening to us, they can identify with that too, especially if you're in our uh, our line of work. And there's a difference between a mistake and an intentional act. Yeah. And she sees that, and there's other supervisors up there that sees that, but there are those that don't. And you can definitely see the difference between those. Yeah. And that's something I, I've, I've talked with some of them before, you know, and it's, it may just be a personality trait. It might be one of those things where you take to heart everything that's said to you, no matter in what context it is or what setting or whatever like that. It's, it's a big thing. And, you know, for us, it's, it's not a thing for us three that's sitting here in this room. It's not a thing. You know, we, you know, you, Judy write, write me up on something that I've done wrong or something like that. That's fine. Okay. Next day. Hey, how you doing? Not that big a deal. And we're all three friends. Yeah. And nothing's changed about that. Yeah. Friends for decades, literally decades. Decades. Yeah. But sometimes I think a lot of that is just total respect because if you respect where I'm coming from and I respect you, it's going to come across totally different. Nobody likes to be corrected. None of us like to be told you didn't do that right or you need to change how you're doing that. None of us want to hear that. But if you respect the person that's telling you that, even though you might not like it, I think you're going to take it a little bit better. Yeah, you absolutely do. And that's, and that does help out. It, it helps a lot. I mean, when you have somebody that, especially somebody that's, that's worked um, in the same role that you have and, and you've worked alongside. I mean, it helps out a lot in that point. For those of you that's listening, that's, that's in the 911 industry, all three of us uh, and you guys, there has always been someone that you would literally walk through hell for if they ask you to do that yep. as far as a supervisor that you respect. And, I, I think the key reason that you do that, it's it's all in the way they come to you and work with you through things. It's the ones that come to you like, you know, an ogre that you don't want to do anything for. Yeah. And that's what makes the environment bad for everybody in that time in that kind of a situation. Yeah, it it does. It and I mean, it's it's toxic if you have something that's like like that, where you you don't feel comfortable talking with a, a supervisor, you don't want it to 
you know, turn into something else. You don't want that supervisor to hold something like that over you at a, at a later time. It's, it's just business. That's all it is. You know, you get it cut and clean, done with it and move on that we've got way too much work to do to sit and dwell on something like that. And, and you know, yourself from being in supervision, it's not just a case of how the supervisor comes to you. It's a case of how the uh, communications officer responds back to the supervisor That's very true. as to how that reaction comes back too. So it's not just a one way street with, with y'all being the bad guy. It's the other way too. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it can be. And, uh, you know, something else I think we were, uh, want to talk about too. We've both mentioned this and that was the, uh, kind of the, the transition that the kind of calls that we've had of the past and the calls from the past. I mean, all of us have worked up there for decades. We've been up there for a long, long time. Me personally, I can't even remember some of the calls I took last week. I can't remember half of them I took today even. But I still remember the calls that I took my very first month that I was there 20 years ago. It's just one of those things I've talked with. I mean, almost everybody that worked with me and, you know, a couple from other agencies, too, when I've been to a conference. Those are the calls you remember. You remember those first ones. They they sit with you and they, they stay with you. They don't, they don't go away. You can take horrific calls after that. You'll forget about them and somebody, until somebody mentions them. But just as... Is like, like almost like they were yesterday. They'll come right back to you, those first calls you took. There's definitely going to be the calls that you will never forget. That it could be 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you'll be able to tell that story just like it happened yesterday. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but I also have talked to a lot of people that say the same thing. When you ask them, what's the worst call that you ever took? They can rattle it off word for word. They can give you the exacts no matter how long ago it was. Do you think the reason for that is, is those are the ones, those are the initial ones that you cut your teeth on? That's where you get your experience that in later years, they tend to become more routine more so than the first ones because they were the first ones. There has to be some sort of element of that working with it. Has there be. would be. I don't think that's all of them, though. I think that some of the horrific calls that we hear are things that you don't normally hear in your life that people that don't do our job would never hear and should never hear. And so some of the things that you hear are things that you have to process you have to figure out how in the world do people do these things to other people or how could that ever happen? So you find yourself not sleeping at night or you find yourself not eating or crying at the drop of a hat. And that's when you know that you really need to talk to someone. If it's a coworker, if it's a supervisor, if it's some of the things that are offered to you for counseling or debriefing, to get it out because if you know that it's normal, even though it doesn't feel normal, it's normal that your body and your mind's reacting to those things. It's how you take care of yourself that gets you through it. But I don't think it ever changes. I still think when I'm 80 and 90 years old, I'll be able to tell you about a couple of calls that are very vivid for me. All right. Well, I mean, since we're on the subject, uh, 
I'll start off. I, I've had, I know I've got, I, I'd probably say three calls. I remember one of them was not that big of a deal. Um, one of them, I don't want to discuss on the air. Uh, the other one, it was a, uh, it was a call I got. I was on midnight shift going through my first month of training. And it was a woman who called us. It was probably three o'clock in the morning. Me and my trainer was on the, on the line with her. And, uh, you know, she says there's a, a man knocking on my door and he's been out there knocking on the door for about five minutes. He's, he's not stopping. And I said, okay, well, do you know this person? Well, I don't really want, want to look outside. I don't want to see who it is. Um, but, uh, I, I don't think I know who it is. And then she says, oh, uh, he, he stopped knocking and let me go out to the window and look. So she looks over at the, goes to the window, opens the blind, just barely enough to where she can see. And she says, well, he's, he's walking out to the car and there's another guy sitting in the car and it looks like he's, he's getting a backpack or something like that, or a duffel bag. I can't really tell. And now he's, he's, he's walking around my house. I, I don't know what he's doing. And he's walking around my house. Oh my God. He set my house on fire. So what had happened was he went to the car, got a duffel bag that had some, uh, like a gas can in it, doused her house with gasoline and set it on fire with her inside of it. So at this point, I'm thinking to myself, okay, her house is on fire. The immediate thing you would think of on something like that is get out of the house. But obviously these people are wanting to cause her harm or something along that lines. So you can't say get out of the house. Right. So for me, anyway, with, with this, luckily, the suspects that were there drove off. And at that point, I said, all right, get out of the house. Get out of the house. She had a cordless phone. Back then, hardly anybody had cell phones. She took her cordless phone outside, and she saw who it was. And apparently, it was some of her ex-coworkers that had some sort of a minor dispute. And they decided they wanted to set her house on fire. So they were probably actually there knocking on her door trying to see if she was actually there. Or maybe they were trying to make sure that she was, you know, maybe she wouldn't wake up while her house is on fire. Maybe she died inside of it. I don't know. And that's one of the things we don't know about, the, you know, the outcome of those type calls. But, you know, that one, it just, it sits with me. I remember her when she starts screaming, they're setting my house on fire. And me thinking, I'm a new dispatcher. What am I supposed to do? I'm looking at my trainer. I'm like, I, I'm clueless. And she, we just kept talking, trying to figure out what we could do. It's one of those hard situations. I haven't had to deal with something like that since then. But I think that's a fine example of the downside of our job is sometimes you want to do more. You feel like you're not doing enough. Yes. Or they called after something had occurred and there's not much you can do anymore. And another part of it is not knowing the outcome. A lot of times we don't know the outcome. We get the heat of the call and the heat of the incident but we don't really know what happened afterward. And you take so many calls back to back that you can't watch every single call because most of them are hot calls, but you you have some that stick in your head like this one and you wonder what was the outcome and what really would cause somebody to do that type of thing. And I think for me, that's one of the biggest downfalls of the job. And you mentioned something about the, the worst call you took, people asking you about the worst call you've you've taken before. I get that asked to me, I mean, almost daily, not quite daily, but it's all the time. And I, I tell them that's not something you want to know. And, you know, I, I had somebody really persistent one time, said, no, I, I want to hear what it is. And I told him, and I'm not going to tell y'all. Um, 
because it, it is that bad. And I finally told this person and afterwards he was like, you know what? You're right. I, I didn't need to know that. And I, I'm sorry that I asked about it. So from, you know, now what I do is if somebody asks me for my worst call, I'll say, well, I'll, I'll tell you something, you know, just kind of messed up or, or fun from the day, you know, today that, that those calls. But, uh, Judy, I think you had something we were talking about before the, we were doing this about some of the worst that you've heard. Yeah, there are a lot of things that come to mind, actually. But I will have to say that the very worst situation that I've ever had to deal with as a 911 dispatcher is going to be an officer down. Amen. And it's hard to really talk about without choking up because I have been on duty when it's occurred more than one time and one time is too much for anybody it is we we've uh, in previous episodes we've talked about and played some calls of offer officer down and me personally i've um just the, the the level that you have your blood pressure just creeps up with every little bit of it you know you can start out with your normal bit and then you may have a foot pursuit or a vehicle pursuit or something like that and that spikes your blood pressure a little bit and then somebody says shots fired and it really goes up i remember the first time on the radio i heard shots fired coming from an officer during a pursuit my head was hot i mean i could feel you know my blood pressure going up and then just like you said once you reach the point of officer down it's it's a whole different level i think you stop breathing yeah for me you stop breathing um you don't want to look around because all of your coworkers have stopped breathing. They all have tears in their eyes. Um, and, and you have to keep going. Yeah, you have to You have to do your best. You have to do better than ever because you don't want to miss anything. You want to get all the help uh, there as quickly as you can. And, again, you're wanting to know what's going on, but you have, you know, you have to wait that out. And it's a terrible place to be. Uh, you wonder if it's a friend of yours, but again, the police department, because I came to work for DEC when it was just the police department, that's family. That's always been family to me. The fire department and EMS is now too, but that when a police officer is injured, if you've never even heard of him before, you've never seen his name on a worksheet, that's still your family. And it's hard to process when you're in the middle of something like that and you're waiting for the outcome of a family member. Yeah. The hardest thing to deal with is the loss of one of our brothers or sisters. And the longer you work in the 911 field, the more of a chance that you have of having someone get killed that you know. Uh, each year, and I've done this uh, for years now, the FOP Memorial during Police Week uh, here in Nashville down at the First Baptist Church on Broadway where I go over the names of every single officer or ranking officer uh, that's been killed in the line of duty that's made the ultimate sacrifice since 
the Nashville Police Department and then when Metropolitan Government took it over and it became the Metro Police Department. And all of those officers' pictures are in frames sitting on two tables, one table for the Nashville Police and one table for the Metropolitan Police. And, you know, as I've told the people that's attended before, these are not just pictures in a frame. You know, a lot of these people are my friends. And I say are my friends rather than were my friends because they continue to live today. They just don't live amongst us. They're on the other side. Those are really hard calls to take and listen to because you know that those people, they work with you and you may know them, maybe friends of yours. They're just, it's really hard. And not to downplay any of that at all. If you switch over to somebody that you've never met before, those calls can be equally as difficult. Right. You've never met these people ever. They're calling you from the first time and they're at the worst time of their life and they're needing help from you. And you're there to give it to them as best as you can. So we're going to actually review a call here. Uh, this is actually going to be a uh, a 999 call, which is the equivalent of uh, 911, but uh, in the UK. And this is of a, a very good dispatcher relaying CPR instructions to someone. Um, if you can just pay attention to the, the call and how calm he is during this, it's a really, really good call. Um, great dispatcher on this, and we'll talk about a little bit more about it here in just a minute. Roll tape. Ambulance, is the patient breathing? No, he's just stopped breathing. Is he not breathing at all? No. Okay. It was on the bed, so I don't know how to, I won't be able to do CPR on the bed. Okay, don't worry, I'm organising help. Just stay on the line, okay? <sighs> Did you just find him like this? He just um, sat up and started going, <laughs> and then it's just right. stopped. What I want you to do is lay him flat on his back on the ground oh, and remove any pillows. I'll have to try and get him on the floor. Okay, just do whatever it's it takes. Exactly. But put the phone down if you have to and just drag him on the floor. Alright, now one second. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Is he on the floor? Yeah. Okay. Listen carefully. I'll tell you how to do chest compressions. Okay, so place the heel of your hand on the breastbone in the centre of the chest, right between the nipples. Yeah. Put your other hand on top of that. Okay, pump the chest hard and fast at least twice per second and two inches deep. Okay, just let the chest come all the way up between the pumps. We're going to do this until help can take over. Okay, just count out loud so I can count with you. Okay, match my pace. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Keep that going. One, two, three, four. That's perfect. Keep that pace. That's really good. Okay, we're coming as fast as we can. It's really important we keep them chest compressions going and we'll be able to help him when we get there, okay? Yeah. All right, just keep going. You're doing great. Yeah. Breathe. Okay, just keep... Keep the compressions going. We're nearly with you. When, you have to tell me when to come and open the door. Yeah, I will do. When that when they pull up, I will let you know. And when that happens, I want you to nip down, open it as quickly as you can, come back up and carry on with the compressions until they take over, okay? Okay, 
you keep going, we're nearly there. I know it's going to feel like a long time, but we're nearly there. Yeah. Okay, they're going to be pulling up any second now. Nip down, leave the door open, come straight back up and start the compressions again. Okay. Back up. Yeah, just get straight back on them compressions. They'll be with you any moment. They'll come straight in, but don't stop. Even when they're coming to the house, carry on until they take over, okay? Yeah. You're doing ever so well. We're going to give him the best possible chance. Just keep them compressions going. They'll come up to you. This is the ambulance crew. We're on scene. Okay, thank you. Right, cheers. Thank you. So once again, the dispatcher on this does a great job. He's very clear in his instructions. He makes it out to where she knows exactly what she has to do when she follows the instructions, it seems like, to the T. Um, it's it just, it was a really good call, you know, start to finish. I'm not sure of the outcome, just like, uh, and a lot of times we don't know what happens in the call. So I'm, I'm not really sure of the outcome of that. Although I will say that I've seen some rough figures that, uh, CPR is only effective somewhere between, I think five and 20% of the time. So it's, it's not always something that, that, that works, but you, just like he says, we're giving you the best chance we can at, at, you know, saving, uh, him. That's. That's what you're doing when we're on the phone doing CPR. It's the last possible thing you can do to help somebody that, you know, may or may not be able to come back from it, but you have to help them. And that call went extremely well, but most calls are are not that easy to even get your instructions across or to get the person to calm down enough that they even know what you're asking them to do to help the patient. So this one is great to go by and just understand that the dispatcher is trying to give you information to help the patient as upset as you are. If you will calm down and listen, then you can give better care. You can give more care. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. Uh, on I mean, Every single day that, that we're there, there's someone who calls and they're hysterical to a point and there's there's really not too much you can do about it. You can try your best to calm them down. Some people, you can. Some people, they, there's just no calming them down at all. There's nothing you can say that will get them to a point where they're going to be actually answering the questions that you're asking them. And that's totally understandable because you're in a situation that is scary and you're excited and panicked and I understand, but if you don't calm down then you can't really be of much help to help us get even get the right location, much less be able to give you the instructions that you're going to need. Yeah, At minimum, try to get the location so we can at least get somebody out there and try to figure out what's going on. And we've discussed before uh, the absolute need to control the, uh, control the call, uh, regardless of what the other individual is doing. Uh, you have to maintain control. Uh, it's hard to, as, as they've said, reel people in, but you definitely will lose them if you buy into the screaming and the hollering and then you start screaming and hollering, then everybody's screaming and hollering and nobody's going to get any help. So irregardless of what they're doing, it's important that, that you maintain the control because you're the one that sets the tone for how that call may very well uh, end up. And, you know, 
Judy and Brandon both can can tell you when we're listening to these calls, uh, as we've said before, it's rough. But we're also taught to uh, empathize with the caller, not to sympathize with the caller. Now, there's a fine line, as Judy has said, between those two definitions, and I'll tell you exactly what they are. When you're empathizing with an individual, it's the ability to understand and share the feelings, share the feelings that the other person is going through. While when you're sympathizing with someone, you're showing feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. At that point, they're not needing that. They're needing help, and they're needing you to understand what they're going through. Yeah, it's it's a a rough situation top to bottom. It's difficult to handle it, but just like we've all said, the best thing to do is just try to keep calm while you're on the phone with these people. And, and all of us that are here, we've been doing it so long that it, it's just second nature to us. A, a lot of times you'll hear somebody on the phone and, they'll sound almost, I won't say robotic, but nearly because they've done this so much. And you might think, oh, you know what? They, they don't really care. That's not the case at all. We're keeping calm. We're getting instructions out. We're trying to do everything the best we can and trying to do it as efficiently as possible because as everyone's heard, seconds count with things like this. We have to get everything going. If there's a bunch of chaos going on, if they've got one minute of life left in them, and you're taking 45 seconds of that just because there's t- so much going on and we can't get you on the phone, that's that's 45 seconds of that person's life we can't get back. And if we panic and we feed into the situation, we're not going to be the help that you need. Also with CPR, a lot of people are CPR trained now. But there's a big difference in knowing how to do CPR, being able to do CPR for someone maybe that's a stranger versus the need for CPR on a family member or a loved one. And that's when listening to us, we can kind of guide you and get you back into where you need to be to go into action. And on top of that, we, we're going in this literally blind on it. We're talking to somebody on the phone. We're, we're not in front of these people. We don't know exactly what they look like. We don't know what the scene looks like. All we know is they're, and in this case here, there was somebody that was not breathing. I've taken calls just like that where the where the person was up on the bed or somewhere like that. You can't really do good chest compressions with somebody on the bed because the bed flexes. Their chest won't actually go in and out while they're doing this. So you have to pull them off the bed. And I remember I, I, I took a call. It was early in the morning uh, on a first shift one time. And it was a, an older woman. And her she woke up and her husband had, had passed on but she wasn't sure if he was too far gone for, for help or not. So we went ahead and, you know, started working on him, but she, she was having trouble getting him off the bed. So I said, well, you, you need to do anything you can to get him off the bed. Don't worry about hurting him. Cause obviously at that point, if he's not breathing, you're not going to hurt him any worse. So she, she gets up on the bed and tries to get him off and, you know, tries pulling him and she's just a, a very small, you know, frail old woman. She's having trouble. And I, I said, well, ma'am, we really have to help him. You know, at this point, I'm, I don't really care how you get him off the bed. If you have to go up on the bed and lean yourself against the wall and kick him off the bed, go ahead and do it because we have to get him on the floor. That's the only way we're going to be effective with this. 
luckily the she was right around the corner from uh, our closest fire engine so the first responder got there really quick and was able to help and once again i don't know what happened with him they transported he went to the hospital but i don't know if he made it from there or not i had uh, a call like that where they had been married over 50 years and she had called in uh, her husband was uh, sitting in the bathroom on the toilet, and she said, he's still breathing, and I need someone out here. Now, those of us that have done medical for a while, you can tell what's agonal breathing and what is normal breathing. Now, agonal <laughs> breathing is, for all practical purposes, this person has stopped breathing and you've probably got a minute and a half to, to get this person to come around through CPR. The heart has stopped, and it is the brain's last attempt at sucking air until the brain dies. And that's where your minute and a half or two minutes of lead time comes in. So it was imperative that we get him into the floor. The problem was that, as Brandon said earlier with that particular call with the frail lady, same identical situation here. He was a, a bigger guy. She wasn't able to get him in the floor. Uh, she just couldn't. And at that point, you realize that there's nothing that you're going to be able to do. It, in that situation, you give them something to do. Because on that particular call, I didn't. I had to sit there and listen to her tell him how much she loved him, how much he had meant to her over that 50 years that they had been married. She had said that she was holding his hand while we were on the phone it was excruciating for me and all I could do was just sit there with tears running down my face and listen to her tell a guy that uh, she had been married to for 50 years goodbye and you know I talked with our quality control person who does our EMS uh, in-house if if it would have been okay if I had just chose to tell her to, you know, press on his chest and, you know, push him back against the toilet tank and give her something to do until we got there, even if I knew in my heart that medically it, it wasn't going to do anything. But what it did do or what it would have done if I had been able to think to do that is it would have given her something to do and take her mind off of all this other stuff until we could get there and attempt to save him where she couldn't. And with that said, that makes it very clear how you go from a gut-wrenching CPR call to where you are empathizing and trying to draw that professional line to answering the next call, and you don't know what that next call is going to be. Is it going to be worse? Is it going to be something tragic? And you have to just keep on going. And that brings us to another call that we would like to play for you. 
and give you an example of sometimes how hard it is for a dispatcher to get the information and to help the caller. Roll tape. 911, what's the address of your emergency? 2133 West. Ma'am, ma'am, I need you to take a deep breath and give me that address again. short of uh, a length of the actual call itself what 
there was so much going on in that call. The dispatcher did a great job trying to get as much information, but just like we said a little while ago, there's a type of caller that you have that they're just hysterical. You cannot get any information out of them. And this was no different. I mean, it's, it's no fault of hers. She's just walked into, I mean, a murder suicide, uh, where there's adults and children that have, you know, passed on. I can only, I can't even imagine what kind of feeling she had going through her at that point. And for the dispatcher to hear all of that, she did a fantastic job and keeping her attention focused on getting them help and getting information on what was going on. But this is the the daily life of a dispatcher. This is what we hear and try to process. This call, like the one I just explained to you, will give the call taker a feeling of helplessness. And there are very few feelings that are worse than that. In these particular situations, there's nothing that you can do for the victim or victims that they're calling in about. All you can do is be there for the caller and understand what they're going through and and help them work through that until you can get somebody there to help them. And if I could just say something to those of you who may need to call 911 at some time, I would like to let you know how much the dispatchers truly care about each situation. And we are there to do everything we can to help. And many of these calls that you will hear and many more that you will never know about, um, they don't just end when the call disconnects, not for us. A lot of these calls we take home for years. A lot of these calls we have dreams about, or maybe in the middle of the call, we may say a silent prayer for the victims. So when you do call, I hope that you know that we're there for you all over the nation, all over the world. And the calls like that, they're never easy to, to listen to or anything, but there's something that, that has to bring us back that keeps us in there, and it, it can be just about anything. Uh, what we'd like to talk about tonight to, to finish up with, to kind of bring the mood back up a little bit, is some of the funny mishaps we have at work. And any of the 911 dispatchers out there that are on the radio, they will know exactly what we're talking about when we say an open mic. That's when you're on the radio you don't know that the mic is open to where everybody can hear what you're saying and you say some, th- there's no telling. You Guilty. Could, yeah. <laughs> you could sit there and have a, uh, a full-on conversation about your last meal that you had. You went out to Taco Bell, McDonald's, something like that, and they screwed up and didn't give you any ketchup or hot sauce or anything like that at all. And it's just gone out all, all over the, the police air and they're just sitting there listening to you. But it can be a lot worse than that. Um, I was just talking to a coworker today who, uh, within the past little bit, uh, I won't say exactly when it was, but she was, uh, kind of re- what we do when we get our calls in, we'll, we'll read through them and we'll see what kind of police response they need. 
there are occasions where we'll, we'll get a call that, uh, we don't necessarily, we don't think that the police need to respond. And, and generally when that happens, the field supervisor, whoever like that, they'll agree with us. You know, if somebody calls up and says, well, I've got a problem with my, my pizza, it didn't have enough pepperoni on it where there's nothing we can do about that. So we're not going to send somebody out. So she's sitting there reading the call, whatever it is. I, I didn't really get into the, what kind of call it was with her, but she's just sitting there all quiet reading the call and there's a bit of silence there and it was followed by this. Oh, that's bullshit. Just all over the air, <laughs> all over. And, you know, of course, uh, somebody had to call up on the phone after that. One of the supervisors said, well, what was bullshit? I want to know. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a recent one. Uh, I've got a couple of favorites. Judy here is actually involved in probably my favorite one. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> so, uh, and as far as me, I've, I've been actually lucky as far as that. I have had open mics before, but I've not said anything terrible while on the open mic. But uh, I was telling you all a little bit earlier, it's not necessarily an open mic story. It's just one where I didn't really preview the call like I should have. So I had this call, and this was back when I was going through dispatch training. This was 20 years ago. And uh, the, you have a kind of format when you're doing the police dispatch and how you dispatch the call. You give out the car number. You tell what kind of a call they're going to. You give the address, and then you say the uh, caller's name, and then you go on with the text of the call. It's that format for every one of them. So I'm sitting there. I'm saying, oh, we'll get you to go to this uh, disorderly person over at this address. And Anus is calling. And then I just immediately unkey. <laughs> what it was, I looked at the name again. It was A-N-O-O-S. His name was Anus. But uh, before I previewed it, I, I should have asked my trainer at that point, I said, how do you think you say that guy's name? I wasn't paying attention. It just rolled off into my tongue and. Immediately after that, somebody keyed up and said, well, can you can you tell me that name of that complaint again? <laughs> That's when you'd love to see their face when they heard that come across. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> but the, the, the my favorite one, my absolute favorite one, I don't know. Uh, so I'm, this is a long time ago, back when we actually still had a traffic radio. Uh, the, the traffic radio for us, it was uh, pretty much they took – they started out, they had a few cars, and they would be the first ones to get erect. And didn't matter where inside Nashville it was, they were the first ones that were sent to it. So, uh, Judy, on, uh, I think you were on your lunch break, maybe, or something like that. You were yes. over, yeah, talking with, uh, with one of her other employees, and she's there on the radio, and somebody keys up in the middle of it saying, You got an open mic. So she starts checking all of her buttons, her foot pedal, everything she can. There's nothing that's that's sticking around there. And, you know, she looks over and Judy is sitting there and our old radio consulate had a, a red button on it that you could press to make the, the mic hot. So if you had to go to the backup console over there, you could do it. And she's sitting there on that red button. And uh, Judy, you want to tell what, what she said? Well, I had no idea I was on the button. I want to make that really clear. But once uh, everyone else seemed to know that somebody was pressing the button, all of a sudden the dispatcher at that console <coughs> yells out across the whole 911 room, get your fat ass off my button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was really not good. 
And not only did it go out all over the room, it went out all over the county as well. Yes, it did. So everybody had a good little laugh off that. Well, if you're going to do it, do it right. (laughs) That's it. Well, I think on that note, it's time to call it a night. Judy, as far as a guest, our first guest on our first month anniversary, we couldn't have picked a, a better human being and a more beautiful person. You know, you know, as a as a person, I love you dearly, and so does Brandon. And as a supervisor, uh, every bit the same. I mean, you're just you're just a class act, and anybody that that works at the Nashville Center, they know that. They truly know that. Um, and we'll see y'all next week. This has been this has been a it, it, it's been a hard time in some aspects, but it's been a lot of fun in others. And that's that's our life. That was mine. That continues to be theirs today. That's the nature of the the business. That's just what ha- that, that's the way it happens. You're going to be happy and laughing one second. The next second, you're crying. And, you know, the next second after that, there's no telling what's going to happen. It's just one call to the next, and that's the way it works. But Well, on. thank you both for having me. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. I think that your show is really taking off. I love listening. And you guys out there, continue listening. These guys are going to keep you laughing and crying for days to come, I'm sure. All right. Well, we'll see you for the next edition of Music City 911. Until our next podcast, I'm Rick Beasley. I'm Judy Langston. And I'm Brandon Hall. See you guys. Good night. Take care. <laughs>